hop in the sleigh, fasten those seatbelts, and turn up your radio. We're going on a holiday road trip. For many of us, food is a cornerstone of the holiday season. It brings friends and family together to share memories, cultural traditions, and great flavors. And what we eat says a lot about our history as we pass recipes and traditions down from generation to generation. Welcome to Route 51. I'm Shireen Seward. From figgy pudding to fruitcake, many foods can bring on the holiday cheer, though depending on where you live and where you're from, foods that are considered an intrinsic part of your holiday celebrations might seem strange to other people. But sharing those traditions can bring us closer together offering us a better understanding of our cultural heritage and uniting us as we welcome new neighbors from around the world to our communities and homes. So what are the food traditions essential to your celebrations? We want to know. You can join us by calling 800-780-9742 or email route51 at wpr.org. Our guest today is Luke Zahm. He is host of PBS Wisconsin's Wisconsin Foodie. He's also owner of the Driftless Cafe. He's a two-time winner of the Edible Madison Local Hero Award and was named a 2017 James Beard Best Chef Midwest semifinalist. Zahm and his wife Ruthie Zahm have owned and operated Driftless Cafe since 2013. Luke, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. What an Fantastic opportunity. Well, we've been looking forward to this program all week long. I got to say, much of what we eat during the holidays has been something that's been handed down to us from uh, from our parents, our grandparents, and, and so on. So generally speaking, what do those Wisconsin staples say about the earliest settlers here and their continuing influence on our celebrations? Yeah. I mean, uh, I would like to uh, give a nod to... Uh, <laughs> the the members of my family that handed down my sweet tooth because like the Christmas cookie consumption um, for me is just <laughs> out of control this year. Uh, I, it, it's straight filth. Um, <laughs> I can't, I can't help it. I can't help it. I see that plate and I'm just like, Oh, I just need like two more. And then it's maybe like two more. Uh, but obviously uh, most families have a holiday tradition that they, you know, revere in some ways. And for some families, you know, it, it can be as much as, uh, you know, going out to the local uh, small town uh, Mexican restaurant and getting some of those fajitas that are so delicious. Or, you know, it can be as grand as the big goose uh, with all the trimmings. And, um, you know, it, it's so varied and nuanced, just like Wisconsin's cultural identity. There are so many traditions that comprise who we are as a as a place. And uh, I'm just really excited to kind of get into that today. Well, you mentioned the Christmas goose, and that's that's kind of one of my questions. These traditional meats of winter, how were they chosen? Who decided that the Christmas goose was the way to go, for example? Well, I don't know exactly who chose it, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't the goose. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think I think a lot of those uh, traditional, you know, specifically proteins, were kind of sourced through necessity. Um, you know, if you look at some of the traditions that that started before folks came from Europe, you know, I have a I have a good buddy, Corey Geiger, who wrote this uh, book about bohemian life on his family farm up in the Door County area. And uh, he's got this whole chapter about a carp for Christmas. And, you know, the bohemian culture, they revered that carp. It was raised in like beautiful spring water. 
in the middle of the city and it has a very clean flavor. So Bohemian immigrants would often keep the carp in their bathtub uh, starting about today, you know, and they would keep it fresh and then they would prepare it for their Christmas feast. And it actually was so monumental to them that they really, really lobbied to have carp brought into Wisconsin, which is why we have so many carp in Wisconsin today. They had worked with the Wisconsin DNR to get them introduced into like local ponds and streams. So that tradition could carry on. It, the goose uh, is another fantastic uh, representation uh, of a European tradition brought here. And I think like for a lot of folks and families, the goose was this symbol of affluence. So even if you had kind of a, a rough financial year, putting that goose on the table uh, really was a symbol to yourself and to your family that this was how you were going to celebrate. And, uh, you know, personally, I don't love a Christmas goose. Uh, I think they're kind of tricky to prepare and they can be kind of uh, stringy and jamey. But for a lot of families, that was, I mean, that was yeah. their jam. Yeah. That was the highlight of the entire year is that goose on the table. Yeah. I, hey, hey, Luke, I, I know that you're you're walking around as you're talking and we're having a little trouble with the, the sound. So uh, I, I hate to tell you, but I, I think we might need to have you sit for a little bit. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right. Okay, cool. If it gets worse. Uh, it gets worse. You let me know. I, I will. I will. Uh, hey, my family is not of German descent, but... Even so, much of the German tradition is really enmeshed in our celebrations. I mean, and I feel like that's a thing throughout Wisconsin because we have so many uh, people of German descent here. I mean, the prominence of sausage, for example. How do those German foods find their way into the mainstream and become so prominent in our celebrations? Yeah, I mean, uh, German culture has uh, definitely shaped uh, Wisconsin's dining traditions. So uh, looking at, like, you know, older cookbooks... It's it's not uncommon to see where on Christmas Day, uh, German people would, you know, go to their place of worship and they would come home and they would have a light meal of like worse. So they would have sausages. They would have some of the like, the stolen, the, the fruitcakes that would kind of, you know, fortify their lunch. And then for dinner, they would go into, you know, something different uh, and, and much more pronounced. So you would get into like some of the veal. Some of the veal and aspic, which, uh, you know, may be delicious. And if you're a listener at home who eats veal and aspic, I would really love it if you called in to walk mm -hmm. me through that process. Because mm -hmm. uh, that sounds uh, gross. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I've seen that at, at, at the table, and it, it, it seemed weird to me, too. But 800-780-9742. Somebody's got to know what that's all about, right? Seriously, it reminds me of uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, where uh, Grandma puts the cat food in the Jello. Oh. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Funny. it's kind of that same vibe. Uh, so yeah, th there is so much of that tradition. You know, you you get into the beer, you get into the schnitzel, you get into like all these things that uh, folks from the Upper Midwest kind of hold synonymous to to celebration and celebration tradition. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're right. A lot of that comes out of uh, old world Germany. One thing that's popular in Germany and Austria was actually invented in Switzerland, that raclette. I had never heard about this uh, until about a week ago. I was talking to my friend Amy, in, in, who lives in River Falls, and she was talking about this annual raclette celebration that she does with family and friends every year. And I, I thought, I, I've never 
never heard of that. Had you heard, have, have you heard of that before? Absolutely. I mean, Raclette, like, in some ways should be a second nature to us because we are the dairy state. Um, but, you know, it, it's traditionally, uh, it's Swiss cheese. So almost in the style of Gruyere. Or uh, if you're really familiar with Wisconsin cheeses, kind of in this, it's an Alpine style cheese. So it's, it's very much like Pleasant Ridge Reserve that's produced in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. Um, but what it is, is it's heated up and it's melted and it's scraped. And it's scraped onto a variety of different foods. Mm-hmm. So potatoes are an easy one, but sometimes it's just scraped onto crusty bread. Mm-hmm. And it gets this sweet, nutty, aromatic um, you know, my kids would say it's not a pleasant aromatic sensation, but, uh, you know, what do they know? Stinky uh, cheese, stinky it cheese. Is, uh, <laughs> it's definitely one of those uh, those traditions that are on the holidays. For a fact, I know that uh, my daughter was in Chicago this last weekend doing a little bit of last minute shopping and they were selling raclette on the street. And uh, my sister-in-law, who spent uh, some time in Scandinavian countries, like had to stop what she was doing, put her bags down and get that raclette uh, because it's just so synonymous with the holidays. And, you know, it's it's such a beautiful and fitting Midwestern tradition. Well, I'm intrigued. I, I really want to try that. And she's in, she's it's not fondue. It's not something that you dip, uh, you know, something in. So it's a little bit different than that from the looks of it. And, and she's got some kind of special grill. But I guess uh, a toaster oven works fine, too. Um so, works fine. Okay. All right. Good. Um, yeah, definitely want to try that. What we in my family uh, have a strong Norwegian background, and I know there are many Norwegians in central and western Wisconsin. I want to talk a little bit about those foods. Lefsa, big tradition. Can you explain what it is? Lefsa. Uh, <laughs> Besides so, just something uh, super yummy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, Lefsa when uh at the cafe one season and i decided like hey you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna put lefsa on a dessert menu and uh you know really kind of try and and really work into that process because uh in southwestern wisconsin we do have a lot of uh norwegian descendants and uh the thing that i learned really really quickly is nobody's lefsa is as good as their grandmother's lefsa you got that Um, right i cannot i cannot make it Mm -mm. But it's a potato bread, Mm -hmm. and it's an unleavened potato bread. And so, again, it was kind of one of these foods that was built out of necessity and availability of ingredients. Um, But for a lot of Norwegian immigrants here, it was their reminder of home. Mm -hmm. So it is quite literally a very thin, almost like a crepe batter that you spread onto a flat grill, and then you flip it with these flat sticks, these flat wooden sticks, And it has this really delicious, light texture. But at the same time, it's fantastic with a little bit of butter, a little bit of cinnamon and sugar. Or use it almost like as a table bread. Or in, you know, if you thought about like Latin culture, you would think of almost a tortilla. Yeah. So for, you know, Norwegian immigrants, it's this flavor of home. And I think that that is kind of what a lot of the holiday traditions in Wisconsin are. They're, they're a throwback to these places that we either originated from or came from. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a season to remember mm-hmm. uh, because I think uh, specifically like in indigenous culture, winter is the time of storytelling. 
And that's when we have this ability to really reflect on where we came from, uh, our year previous, or, you know, just be able to sit hopefully with the people that we love and share a meal. Well, there are some traditions like lefsa that are certainly worth passing down. There are others like lutefisk, in my opinion, not so much. <laughs> What's your opinion on the lutefisk situation? Uh, you know, for uh, risk of getting run out of uh, Burning County on a rail, um, <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, lutefisk is not my jam. Uh, <laughs> it is uh, It's one of those situations that you walk into the church basement and automatically you're polarized. Either like, okay, I can get down on this, or uh, there's no way that I'm ever coming back to this. So lutefisk is this, it, it, it's kind of like a jellied fish. And, uh, you know, I, I don't even know if I need to describe it too much more. <laughs> if jellied fish doesn't either sell you or repulse you, like from that moment, uh, it, it's, it's kind of... Uh, a play on that, but uh, Norwegians and Norwegian immigrants, specifically some of the older folks in our communities, they love lutefisk because, again, it's symbolic of the traditions that were passed down to them from, you know, ancestors past, and uh, it, it provides them with this feeling of home. And, and, and I think that that's so much of what the holiday food traditions really imbibe here. Luke Zam is here as we continue our discussion about the history and significance of holiday food customs on Route 51. Ahead, we're going to talk about the new traditions that Wisconsinites are embracing as we welcome new neighbors into our communities. What's served at your holiday table? We want to know. Join us by calling 800-780-9742. You can email us to route51 at wpr.org. I'm Shireen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. You're listening to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. PBS Wisconsin, Wisconsin foodie host Luke Zom is our guest today as we discuss the foods that make our holidays so unforgettable and what they say about our cultural history. What's your favorite holiday food? You can email us, route51 at wpr.org, or call us, 800-780-9742. Luke, before we, before we move on, I, st- I want to stick with the Norwegian thing for just a little bit longer, because I would be remiss if I didn't include the thing my mom talks about all the time when her Norwegian heritage comes up, and it is gammelost. It's, it's the oh. worst thing ever. She said it tastes like, it tastes like dirty socks, and it's this weird, hard, crumbly cake that's that's like got this this mold on it. Uh, and I know cheese has mold, but I mean, have you ever had it? Uh, no, I haven't actually had it. Um, I've heard a lot about it. Uh, specifically, it's supposed to be an aphrodisiac. Like yes. somehow Norwegians have uh, designated this skanky cheese as being the one thing that gets them randy during the holiday season. In, which is great. You know, whatever it takes. We're not here to shame anybody in their cultural tradition. But, uh, you know, I think uh, there is like one spot in Westview, Wisconsin, of course, the Uftamart um, or Dregney's uh, Pharmacy across the street where they will have the cheese only this time of year. And uh, I actually had uh, an associate at the cafe who was on the hunt for it. And then when they found it, 
they found it so offensively smelly and unpalatable that they couldn't bring themselves to eat it. Yeah. But again, you know, it's old school. And for people who are really into that, that idea of whatever connects them to their heritage or their ancestry through their food, um, you know, it's it's something that works for them, you know, so uh, no judgments. No, I'm Get not. It. I'm not. No judgment here. That's for sure. So, <laughs> well, we talked earlier about the ways early settlers in Wisconsin contributed to the foods we eat, like the German settlers here. I want to ask about the, the wonderful ways that we brought other cultural traditions to our table. What can you tell us about traditional Hmong food? Sure. Uh, traditional Hmong food uh, has been kind of a subject of, of fascination for me. Uh, because uh, we have one of the highest concentrations of Hmong populations anywhere in the United States outside of um, outside of even Minneapolis. So the Hmong culture had been displaced and brought here, and a lot of their food, as my friend and chef Yia Vang in Minneapolis would say, is the same way that a lot of uh, cooks who cook farm to table uh, really approach their cuisine. There are a few staples though, like celebration and medicine uh, through the food that really kind of come to light during the holiday time. Uh, one being, you know, the use of lemongrass and ginger uh, and chicken boiled into a soup uh, and either served with sticky rice, which is a very traditional component or, you know, served with, a lot of chilies and different sauces to kind of accompany all of that. Food is humongous in Hmong culture, and it is used as the center point of celebrations, of marriages, of life, of death. I mean, it is synonymous with how they gather and celebrate. So this summer, I actually had the fantastic opportunity to take segments with Ia, who, uh, is actually from, you know, the Wisconsin Rapids area. And in the conversations with Yia, the, the Hmong culture has strong traditions that are really, really close to even some of the Wisconsin traditions. Hmong sausage, uh, which is a really coarse grind, but it's seasoned with lemongrass and ginger, uh, is used as a centerpiece for a lot of tables. They use fish and a lot of like Wisconsin upper indigenous fish that are have been here. You know, they've adapted their palate to be here. So it's this fantastic conversation about foods that are readily available to us being highlighted and showcased on our tables from various different cultural perspectives. And I think that the Hmong people have been absolutely integrated in some ways into our food culture through their their growing practices and their gardening practices. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to go to a farmer's market in the state of Wisconsin and not see amazing Hmong farmers putting out beautiful food that in some ways capture the essence of who we are as this agriculturally centered culture that is constantly shifting into new facets of culinary heights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we've welcomed refugees from Afghanistan over the past year. How, how do you see their, their food traditions merging with ours as time goes on? Well, I think, uh, you know, that's a constant conversation uh, in the state of Wisconsin. And that merging of culture, 
if it was uh, taken and adopted from indigenous culture, uh, which I think uh, definitely deserves its own day in the sun, so to speak, we're all constantly learning from each other. Uh, the one thing that I adore about food and food traditions is that everybody eats. Every culture, every human on the planet does this thing three, sometimes more times a day that ties us all together and is one of the symbols of our humanity. So Afghani refugees who arrived here, I know that there was a tremendous amount of culture shock. And even folks who were around the Fort McCoy area where the Afghan refugees were resettled were bringing in ways for the Afghani people to be able to cook some of their traditional dishes, but again, using Wisconsin ingredients. Mm -hmm. So all of these other cultural ingredients that we, you know, throw out there as being ours or, or maybe being of German culture or being of Scandinavian culture or being of indigenous culture, they kind of get looked at through this new lens of opportunity and get shifted into some of the older cultural traditions. And I think that that's one of the beautiful aspects of upper Midwestern food. It's really hard to find something that is strictly of one culture that has stayed that way, except for maybe your Norwegian cheese. Um, <laughs> that just, you know, remains in this silo of isolation. It all gets kind of worked in and shifted through the lenses of opportunity. It gets shifted through the lenses of different cultural traditions and we end up with something that's uniquely us at the end of the day. You talked a little bit about the indigenous cultures and, and those traditions. Talk a little bit more about that. What are some of the traditional indigenous winter and holiday foods? Well, you know, I think uh, for a lot of folks in the indigenous community, um, it's a time of, of tradition. And just like a lot of folks do around the Christmas holiday or around Hanukkah or whatever you know, celebration that we're taking on as being, quote unquote, our own, the indigenous culture really looks at this wintertime as a time of storytelling and tradition. So traditional foods that you might see pop up, uh, cranberries mm -hmm. in the state of Wisconsin is one of the uh, first and foremost, uh, you know, cranberries are really, really high in vitamin C. And uh, they were hunted and gathered by native cultures all across the northern part of the state as a way to, you know, be able to brighten that wintertime palette. But it was a food of sustenance. So it prevented scurvy and it prevented, uh, you know, a lot of that culture being super homogenized in the food traditions that were coming into the area known as Wisconsin now around them. Additionally, wild rice. Um, wild rice, it, it's, it's a staple for upper Midwestern and Canadian indigenous cultures. And a lot of those people actually had the ability to follow the wild rice harvest, or that's what brought them in deeper into the state. So the Menominee Nation, you know, they are a wild rice people. It is centered around them. And it's not uncommon to see on a lot of holiday tables that wild rice incorporated into different dishes or casseroles or things that people, you know, now look at Wisconsin or Midwestern food culture and be like, well, that is obviously Midwestern food culture. And in fact, we, we adopted that from a lot of the native 
uh, inhabitants of this place when we came in and we colonized. And corn has a big significance, too. Corn is, uh, I mean, we could do a whole show just on corn and the identity of corn and the pre-colonial traditions of corn and the post-colonial traditions of corn. It's one of those uh, ingredients that have shaped indigenous culture since the beginning of time. In fact, uh, the Oneida people just outside of Green Bay feel like there is their ancestral DNA in some of this corn that is often, you know, kind of taken for granted now. But corn is what George Washington's troops were fed in, in Valley Forge when they were starving by the Oneida people. And it's what actually gave them the sustenance to go forward and, and take the American Revolution. Unfortunately, uh, one of Washington's first decrees was to send General Sullivan back into the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York and burn all the crops and the villages. And so the Oneida people came to Wisconsin as, you know, refugees. And they found that their corn was what actually sustained them and allowed them to keep some of their cultural traditions alive. So Wisconsin Foodie, we actually went and, and talked with some of these people who are still growing their sacred white corn. And Ohelagu is the name for one who walks among the corn in the Oneida tradition. And they are still growing this white corn that is so sacred to them and ensuring that their community has access to it. And what that does is it gives their people and people who have the opportunity to try or cook with this corn an understanding of their cultural position, which is so, so important as we move forward in the holidays to really understand who came before us. And if it's corn, if it's wild rice, if it's cranberries, if it's wild game, if it's stinky Norwegian cheese, all of us have a nod that we have to give to the people who were here before us. And that's what the wintertime celebrations are about. It's about creating space for those stories to come to light. And so those cultural traditions get shared forward with the next generation who hopefully maintains that same understanding and reverence for how we got Sure. And it's, it's a really about sharing the, the cultural ideas and cultural lessons and, and welcoming them through, through food. We, we also have a growing number of Latinos who call Wisconsin home. Uh, what traditions do they have that we're learning about here? Well, I mean, like the emergence of the tamales, uh, which, you know, is, is fantastic. Tamales are one of my favorite food. Um, and it's, it's something that like a lot of Latino families, it, it's easy to take for granted how difficult tamale preparation and time consuming it is. But there, I promise you, there is no gift like receiving traditional prepared tamales uh, during the holiday season, because once you've actually put them together, there is an appreciation for how difficult and long that process is. But tamale is like masa or corn flour sometimes wrapped with meat, sometimes wrapped with fruit, sometimes wrapped with mushrooms that are then steamed and then served with various different sauces or other meats to accompany it. And the Latino culture in Wisconsin, you're correct, is growing in prominence. So it's not uncommon in a lot of our small agricultural communities 
to see these tiendas come come to light, you know, Mexican grocery stores where these ingredients are now readily available to everyone. And so my big ask this holiday season is to get out and explore some of these culinary traditions that are right in our backyard. Wisconsin is not this homogenized one people that comprises all of us and we all share the same culinary tradition and the same cultural tradition. We are quite literally a patchwork of humanity. And I think that in the upper Midwest, one of the things that's so beautiful to witness is the blending of these cultures into you know, what has largely been considered Wisconsin's mainstream culture. So get out and explore these smaller markets, these smaller ethnic markets as they're often referred to, because in that, that's how we create that blueprint for going forward. Some people think it's all about the political system. Some people think that that all starts in our brains, but really it starts in our bellies. And if we find one ingredient that we can latch onto and develop a relationship with uh, the people that are providing that with us, we've done our part in creating a more homogenous conversation about who we are and our cultural identity as we move into the future. And it's super cool to when you find yourself at somebody's house for a, for a, for a celebration in the holidays. Think about the differences that uh, between their tables and yours. For example, I, my my one of my closest friends is Italian. She invited me over for Thanksgiving. It was the first Thanksgiving that I didn't do myself, and totally different. I mean, she of course they had the the turkey and the ham, but they also had a bunch of pasta dishes and a bunch of other things. I know uh, Italian households a lot do a lot of times do gnocchi too, also made from potatoes. How do potatoes work, work its way into just about everything on our plates during the holiday season? <laughs> yeah, potatoes are like this beautiful blank canvas uh, that uh, can be shaped into whatever masterpiece uh, you find most compelling. So potatoes, uh, specifically in the upper Midwest and in Wisconsin and around the, you know, the Central Sands region, have been a staple uh, so many cultural traditions. Uh, you can think of the Irish, you can think of the Germans, you can think of the Italians, you can think of, you know, indigenous people who, you know, grew and harvested tubers that were growing in the forest. All of these cultural traditions have looked at this potato as being a caloric staple, specifically during the cold winter season. So, you know, I personally, um, big fan of mashed potatoes. Mm. I don't think that that's, uh, there's too many, um, you know, wintertime tables that don't get graced with the mashed potatoes, but you know, the roasted potatoes, the ability to take those potatoes and work them into soups, stews, different types of foods, the gnocchi, like you said, you know, cut with a little bit of flour and then boiled. Um, there's even like the potato, you know, you're talking about the lefsa earlier, that potato bread, that ingredient is gr a great example of how different cultures have looked at that as a staple and it's shared. And that is like truly the essence of the winter and the holiday celebration is the sharing of that community, that cultural tradition that unites us all, even for like one small season and provides that shared opportunity for reflection it provides the shared opportunity for, you know, cultural remembering and the short storytelling essence that brings us all closer together. Well, you know, there there's something to say about the what we grow here. What does the climate of Wisconsin have to do with with what we eat? 
I mean, the climate of Wisconsin has everything to do with what we eat. Um, man, it, it's rare. Like, if you go back uh, pre-1900, uh, a few seasons ago, I uh, was researching uh, a hotel that was opened in 1896 and recently remodeled in Viroqua, the historic Courtney Hotel. And for the opening celebration dinner, those folks did, like, eight courses of food. But the first course on there was celery oh yeah and uh i was like okay i mean celery seems kind of uh kind of bland but celery wasn't actually grown really widespread in wisconsin at that time so it was this exotic vegetable right uh you know you can go to most supermarkets now and you can find fruits from southeast asia or the fact that you get red table grapes from you know south africa or south america this time of year a lot of us take that for for granted. Sure. But, you know, you look back and farming culture and agricultural availability has shaped what we eat since forever. And I think that that is one of those things that as we're in this season of reflection, it's so important to remember that there are people here producing that amazing food for us, making that food accessible in different cultures different traditions have ways of bringing that to the table that is fortifying for them, but it's not a stretch to mm-hmm. look out and see how many Wisconsinites put wild game on their tables during the holiday. Sure. I know that during uh, the Thanksgiving season, uh, you know, I don't really get into the Turkey that much anymore. Turkey is kind of that, uh, you know, ubiquitous holiday, that holiday bird, but I'm all about the venison. I'm all about uh, yes. having that that showcase for that, right? Uh, because it's something that we've harvested. It's something that we've processed. It's something that you know finds its way onto holiday tables, maybe through snack sticks, maybe through summer sausage. All these ways that we take and adapt that and and make it our own, so to speak. So You're... I think that that you know availability is is everything. Right. You're listening to Route 51 with Luke Zom, a discussion on holiday food traditions and how they differ from other regions of the country. Ahead, we'll talk about Wisconsin-specific holiday foods. We'll hear about traditional Jewish celebrations as well. And we would love to hear about your celebrations, too. What is the one thing you have to have during each holiday celebration? You call us at 800-780-9742 and let us know. You can also email Route 51 at WPR.org. I'm Shereen Seawart. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. Thank you for joining us on Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. It certainly is a a white Christmas this year. Luke Zom stays with us as we continue our discussion on the history behind the holiday foods at the center of our celebrations. And we want to hear from you, too. We want to hear what you're planning to serve. Email route51 at wpr.org. Or you can join us by phone. The number to call, 800-780-9742. Luke, what kinds of uh, holiday traditions came out of the Great Depression in Wisconsin? Yeah, uh, the Great Depression inevitably shaped uh, an entire generation of 
of American immigrants. And I think that, uh, you know, again, like that, that feeling of affluence and celebration during the holiday season for families that didn't have much specifically during that time, the culture traditions kind of got closer. So it goes again back to that availability. What did people have access to? And if it was to be their hallmark celebration for the entire year, what could they provide for themselves that indicated that there were things more important than material possessions at their table to provide them that sense of peace and prosperity that so many people look for during the holiday season? And quite frankly, you know, even today, find it so fleeting. Holidays are a really, really difficult time for a lot of people and a lot of families. And uh, I think that, you know, a lot of times it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we have access to. If it's quick trip sushi, if it's whatever, you know, you might find on your holiday table, if you have the opportunity to share that with people that you love and in a space that provides you a sense of peace and hopefully a sense of prosperity, that is what's really important. You know, Wisconsin uh, has long been a tradition that has had agricultural prosperity. Uh, we've had ups and downs in that for sure. But the Great Depression really, really provided people a, san- a sense of the ability to look inward and find the strength in their tradition. And that is so important. Some of these holiday traditions, too, just bring back these magical memories of our youth, too. We had uh, James in Marshfield who sent us an email uh, saying Christmas Eve at his grandmother's was always oyster stew. And for the kids, the only thing good about it was the little oyster crackers, <laughs> those, little, those little crackers they served. And then they were teenagers. Then they boycotted the oyster stew and demanded pizza. So they got the pizza. The adults still enjoyed their oyster stew. Thanks, James. I uh, appreciate the email. But, yeah, it, I mean, do you have anything like that personally uh, for you, Luke, that reminds you of your childhood, that you, those, those, those childhood Christmases? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan, James. You're right on the mark. Uh, oyster stew is my Christmas Eve jam. Um, and I say that, uh, like, tomorrow, I don't do mine as traditionally as some people do. Like, I have uncles who uh, would just do milk and butter and oysters and then the oyster crackers. And that's fine uh, if, uh, you know, that's how you want to remember your holiday season. Sure. I prefer to, to kind of kick it up a little bit in the words of Emeril Lagasse. Um, so I put a little bit of uh, I put a little bit of bacon in mine and some root vegetables, but still like oyster stew is the thing. And, you know, we have family that doesn't have the opportunity to make oyster stew or they have a hard time finding the fresh oysters uh, to put in there. Uh, so it gets dispersed around our family and our community when I do a big, big pot, which is on my list of things to do tomorrow. But, uh, also those oyster crackers, I'm going to eat those once a year and, uh, I'm going to eat the, the living tar out of them, uh, tomorrow night. (laughs) It's just going to be oyster crackers and fresh bread and cheese and a little bit of charcuterie. So it's kind of this blending of a lot of different cultures into my holiday tradition. And I, I love that. That's what I remember from being a kid is being able to kind of either look forward to or dread 
That oh, one sure. meal of oyster stew. <laughs> sure, exactly. Well, of course, it's not just Christmas. We're we're in the middle of Hanukkah. It continues until Monday. What are some Wisconsin Jewish holiday traditions? Yeah, you know, uh, I think that there's there's a lot, uh, and again, it goes back to like the ingredients that we have here that are available to us. Um, you know, you talk about potatoes. You talk about latke, um, or the potato pancake. Uh, that's traditionally served, uh, you know, in, in Jewish culture, uh, you know, my kids are, are Jewish. So, uh, we incorporate some of that in, uh, you know, we serve ours with applesauce, quite frankly, because, uh, that's where it's at, uh, matzo soup, um, you know, and I think that that's one of those cultural traditions that comes out of, uh, out of the Jewish tradition that most people are relatively familiar with that really that really really delicious dense ball of of that matzo cracker in the chicken soup and uh how lovely that really is and uh you know it gives people that feeling of hope and that kugel uh noodle kugel is one of those things that uh kind of gets you know everybody's grandmother or aunt or wherever they have that that christmas time noodles uh, thing that ends up in the crock pot and it kind of sits there all day. Well, Noodle Kugel has kind of embraced that tradition uh, and, and actually preempted all of it. Uh, I really like, uh, you know, adding a little bit of herb herbaceousness into my Kugel, uh, which is, you know, to take that that noodle dough and sometimes add an herbed element into it. So, uh, you know, dill is my go-to. I really like kind of, uh, you know, increasing that up. You get a little bit of dill in that dough and you, you know, you basically just boil it together and then you kind of smash it into that cake. And, and it's it's so good. Oh, it sounds um, good. It sounds yeah, great. Brisket. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's so great. You know, and, and again, it's it's a roadmap for being able to take all of these cultural pockets, look at them, pay respect to the cultural traditions that they came from and be able to shape new traditions for for generations to come. I want to ask you about some of the more unusual things we find in Wisconsin that probably sound pretty weird to people in other areas of the country, like cannibal sandwiches. Well, we call it wildcat <laughs> at our house, uh, and I have to wild have cat. it. Yeah, we call it wildcat. I've always called it wildcat, and, and I live in Wausau, and many people here call it wildcat. So even at the butcher shop, they call it that. Where, where did that come from, though? I mean, there are so many people who think that's really gross, and I, I love it. Yeah, well, you know, wildcat... Uh... As uh, as you refer to it, or you know, the cannibal sandwich, or beef tartare, uh, it it spans tremendous cultural tradition. You know, there's a lot of European, Eastern European countries um, that really view that as a hallmark of celebration, because the essential ingredient in that is fresh, raw meat. Ooh, it's so good. You don't want to use old meat for your wildcat. I promise. <laughs> no, Unless you, you do not. Spend, uh, <laughs> you want to spend New Year's in the hospital, um, <laughs> which doesn't sound like anybody's idea of a good time. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it in my family, the, the cannibal sandwiches were crackers, diced onions and raw beef. Yeah, um, we, we put it on rye bread. Mm -hmm. On rye bread. Sure. Mm -hmm. That works, too. Uh, you know, and I've seen that, you know, taken and reshaped in so many cultural traditions in, in higher, you know, haute cuisine where you've got that, you know, kind of poached egg on top. Or I've got a buddy in Milwaukee 
who served his with like whipped bone marrow. Um, oh, it's so good. It's so good. You know, but that's that's the reaction, right? You're like, right. until you so try it. Yeah. Until you try it. Exactly. Don't knock it until you try it. That's right. Um, oh, can we talk and, about uh, can we talk about pickled herring? Because this is one thing. When my dad was alive, uh, he I had to get him pickled herring every Christmas. I've I, I've not been able to even bring myself to try it. I am I am 54 years old. I have never tried pickled herring. What, what's the what? deal with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Girl, you got to live, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> take a risk. Uh, so pickled herring, uh, you know, Scandinavian culture, that's where a lot of that originates from. And like pick, pickling, salting, uh, even, you know, like the ludicrous tradition was was part of the essential way of preserving that food. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, you don't have the access to a lot of the foods all year round in cultures that experience winter. Uh, so, you know, that pickling of that fish it really, really is a way to preserve it. In my family, you know, again, we eat that with the Ritz crackers. Um, but it is, it's it's kind of, uh, you know, it's the hybrid between fish that can sometimes be oily and taste really, really fishy. Uh, that's mixed with uh, a lot of the, the peppercorn and the vinegar and onions. And it takes on this new and bright flavor, uh, which is irresistible to some. And I think like, even in the, even in Midwestern supper club culture, on most salad bars, yes, you yes. find pickled herring. Yes, you do. Right? Mm-hmm. We love it. I, I, you know, my dad. That's the one thing. Like you get around the holiday season, he he enjoys pickled herring. I only see him eat it around the holidays, uh, but it's something that uh, we keep around. And you know, I'll try a piece or two every year. Get that cute little fork that my mom puts in it. Stab that piece of herring, get it on a cracker, and get it in your mouth. It's delicious. All right, I'm gonna try it. I if I if I can eat wildcat, I can eat that, right? So <laughs> I will. But here's another thing. I just saw this on on Facebook this morning. A friend of mine in in Phoenix had wrote uh, written that he uh, had started his figgy pudding for the year, and you hear about it all the time. What is it? What's in it? I I've never had that either. You know, uh, figgy pudding. I haven't uh, had experience specifically with figgy pudding uh you know this one actually it it is definitely a standard in the uk uh so it kind of comes from you know that part of the world england and uh no offense to any of my british listeners today but it is uh definitely one of those pieces that i actually associate closely with like you know the date cake or, you know, the rum cakes where it's it's really, really, quite frankly, uh, I look at it as a dessert element. But again, I've never had it. So maybe if you try pickled herring, I'll try figgy pudding and we'll meet somewhere in the middle. And next year when we come to do this segment, mm-hmm. we're going to have so much more uh, so much more information available at our fingertips. I like that idea. I love that idea. You're on. We'll do it. All right. Yes. We got about, oh, about two minutes left in our time together. What are your three favorite things you have to have at your holiday table? Three things. Got to have it. Okay, so three things. Uh, Tomorrow night, uh, Christmas Eve, raw oysters. Um, You know, we do the oyster stew, and then uh, I'm going to shuck raw oysters. And uh, it's amazing uh, that uh, people get together, and it's just kind of the way of snacking. I love it. 
uh, cheese, obviously in Wisconsin, you know, leaning into our, our heavy, heavy cheese culture. I really like uh, Upland's uh, Rush Creek Reserve. It's a cheese that's only made this time of year. Oh. And uh, it's made with the last milk of the season from uh, the Uplands cows, which are some of the uh, most amazing cows in the entire state of Wisconsin. No offense to anyone else out there, but it's this really soft spruce wrapped cheese that you heat it up and you pour a little champagne on it. It's so good. Sounds good. And then last but not least, uh, cookies. Oh, yeah. As I indicated (laughs) in the beginning of the segment, cookies are my kryptonite. And so uh, anytime... (laughs) If, uh, you know, Santa's coming to the house, Santa wants molasses cookies. And uh, my mom kind of grew me on on the molasses cookies as a kid, and they've been my favorite culinary and holiday tradition since. Oh, I'm all about the spritz cookies. I'm all about the spritz. I had a a friend bring me a box the other day. Two days ago, they are gone already. They are gone already. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Luke, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. I just have really enjoyed talking with you today, and I, I hope you have a great holiday season. Hey, you too, and uh, I'll look forward to talking to you soon to figure out your uh, your feelings and opinions on pickled herring. Hey, that's that's a deal. It's a date. So thanks, everyone, for joining us today on Route 51 and for including us in your lives throughout the year. I'm Shereen Seward once again thanking our guest, Luke Zom, and wishing you all a very happy holiday season. Our producers today are Rick Ryer, Joy Ratchkramer, and Kate Springer. Rick is our executive producer. Joy is our on-air producer today. Special music from Kelly Clarkson, Pentatonix, Bing Crosby, and Gordon Lightfoot. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. You can hear the archive of each pro- program at wpr.org slash Route 51 or on your favorite podcast platform. If you have an idea for a future program or a question for our production team, email us ideas at wpr.org. Join us next week. Until then, we're heading out of town. The lamp is burning low upon my tabletop. The snow is softly falling. The air is still in the silence of my room I hear your voice softly calling If I could only have you near To breathe a sigh or two I would be happy just to hold the hands I